in uh, our Lenten series. Uh, we're talking about creating space for God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and we've been using the Apostles' Creed as the backdrop for this sermon series. The Apostles' Creed is a collection of thoughts and ideas and truths and beliefs about who God is that the church widely has accepted across the ages. And so we're going to do what we've done every Sunday so far, and I continue to think we'll do it as we move forward in this series. We're going to read together the Apostles' Creed. And so it's going to come up here, and it says this. We, okay, we're, we're just tripled, just like we're tripling down. Like we sang all about it during our, our worship time together. Every song we were singing about this. And we're just going to just triple down and read it together, okay? So I'm going to say one, two, three, and I'd like for you to read it out loud with me, all right? One, two, three. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Holy Catholic Church, stop! We need help here. I know we need help here because I've heard from you. Many of you. Say, Alan, some of you were really bold and some of you were really brave. And you said, man, I just don't understand. Why is that phrase there? Well, let's, let's help one another out here. The Holy Catholic Church is a simple way to say the church that is comprised of all followers of Jesus Christ without division, past, present, and future. Okay? The Holy Catholic Church is the church of all followers of Jesus Christ, past, present, and future. And there is no division. We belong to that church. We belong to that church. There are so many divisions of the church that are important because they're expressions of faith, they're expressions of understanding, and they're meaningful because in each of these expressions of difference, there's a, an attractive quality to people who are searching for Jesus. So there, there are really good things about the denominations that exist. And, and I actually think that in many ways it's helpful for us to have these distinctives because it's like providing opportunity for, dis, for, for others to see some distinctive qualities about the compelling love of Jesus that are attractive to us as individuals. We get in trouble when we double down too tightly on those distinctives and we forget the big collective umbrella under which we all live, which is the Apostles' Creed. 
You, you see it? Distinctives are not bad, except when we double down on them and distinctive begin to be dogmatic. Uh, Gordon Feige talked about the, the Pharisees, and he said they suffered from one fatal flaw. They, dis, they suffered from the disease of hardening of the categories. That's dogmatism, hardening of the categories. Here's what I know about myself. The more I know, the more I experience the power of the transforming love of Jesus, the more I give myself to study, the more I give myself to prayer, the greater confidence I have in who Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are. And the more I understand about who they are, the more I understand that I don't know very much at all. And in my understanding that I don't know very much at all, should, that, that should create in me an extra amount of grace for others who are on the exact same journey that I'm on. They're studying, they're praying, they're reading, they're experiencing the transforming love of Jesus, and they are followers of Jesus, and they don't have to believe exactly like I believe. And when we harden the categories too much, the church is divisive, and we know what Jesus says about us as his followers. He says that we are great examples to others when we experience and practice generous love with one another. He says, by this shall all men know that you are my followers. Finish it for me. That you love one another. Okay. Got it? Holy Catholic Church, all followers of Jesus, past, present, and future, undivided. All right, let's continue reading. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. May it be so among us. Let's go back to one phrase that we're going to talk about today in terms of we believe. And uh, we're going to talk today about we believe in Jesus' ascension. It says, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. So let's explore that for just a second. And I'm going to pull out my Bible. Feel free to pull yours out as well. While I'm looking here, uh, we're going to remind you that uh, last week Kurt introduced us to Jesus and uh, he simply said that Jesus existed. He said that Jesus is Lord. And then he suggested that we orient our lives around following this Jesus who is worth following. And uh, Bart Ehrman's a uh, professor at, uh, I believe, North Carolina State University. Uh, he's a professor of religion there. Actually, excuse me, for those of you who are technical, not North Carolina State, the University of North Carolina. I apologize to state fans, and I apologize to North Carolina fans. The scene we're in uh, basketball season, and tensions are a little high. Uh, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm good. Uh, Professor Ehrman is uh, an agnostic himself, and when Kurt said uh, Jesus existed, uh, Professor Ehrman says exactly the same thing. He says it this way. He says, Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. Jesus did exist, whether we like it or not. And uh, Adam, uh, uh, 
his name is slipping my mind now. Uh, and nobody's going to be able to help me. <laughs> wow. Okay, so there's this guy who wrote this really cool book called The Creed. And uh, he's a Methodist pastor, and he pastors in Missouri. See, I'm, I'm talking so that maybe his name will come back to me. And it's not coming back to me. Let's just say it this way. This wonderful book was written, and in this book, Adam says, my really good friend Adam, says, you know, the interesting thing um, about following Jesus is he did exist, and the interesting thing about following Jesus is simply this. We affirm that Jesus existed. That's absolutely true. There's a number of sources that actually tell us that Jesus existed. And, and the question he asks of us is simply this. Will we choose to believe what the earliest Christians thought about Jesus? Will we choose to believe what the earliest Christians thought about Jesus? This is going to bug me, so I'm going to do something that... Adam Hamilton. Thank you. Woo! Everybody gets three stars for helping me out there. Adam Hamilton, thank you. The issue is what will we choose to believe about Jesus? Church, churches and followers of Jesus have historically uh, adopted some basic beliefs about Jesus through the Apostles' Creed, and one of them is simply that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of the Father. And so, what are the implications? What, what does that mean to us? Well, one of the things it means to us simply is this, and, and it's going to come up for you, and, and it's this, it's in, your, it's in your listening sheet if you're following along, and it's simply this, Jesus' work on earth is finished. Jesus' sacrificial work on earth is finished. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses uh, 19 through 21 that are on your screen here come from a, a larger passage uh, in the introduction to the book of Ephesians. And uh, this is Paul writing to us, telling us about the glory and splendor and the beautiful spiritual blessings that come to us in Christ. And he gets down to the middle part of, uh, of chapter 1, and he begins to pray for us. He says, because Jesus is who he is, and let's be really clear, because Jesus is who he is in his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. Because Jesus is who he is, then we are better off that our lives are better. And so he says this, he says, because of who Jesus is, I have not ceased praying for you. Ever since I heard about your faith, verse 15 in chapter 1, I'm reading from the NIV. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious riches or the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. 
and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the age to come. The exaltation of Jesus did not end with the resurrection. And by the way, if you've noticed in the creed, we skipped over the resurrection. We only did that because we're going to save that for Easter. That's, that's it. We're, we're, we're going to come back to it in Easter. Um, but, but the exaltation of Christ did not end with the, with the resurrection. In the ascension of Christ, Jesus, the Christ, is exalted to the right hand of the Father, and being exalted to the right hand of the Father, he takes a seat. Now, this is an incredible insight to the readers and to the listeners of Paul's day. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to me that this is an understanding of who Jesus is before the Gospels were written. So if you just talk about the, the, the way that things were written, this is one of the earliest collections of writings, AD 60 to 63, somewhere in there. Uh, the Gospels generally are, are dated somewhere after that, 67 to 70, and there's a broader period, there's a broader window there. But the Pauline epistle, this is before the Gospel writers uh, did their writing. And actually, when you read the Gospel writers, Luke Luke sort of takes on the ascension of Jesus in a different way than any of the other gospel writers, uh, and, and as does sort of Matthew in a different way. And you're familiar with Matthew's approach in Matthew chapter 28. You're familiar with Luke's approach, maybe even though you don't know it, very clearly in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But, but here's the deal. The exaltation of Jesus, as powerful as his resurrection was, it wasn't complete until he ascended. His ascension occurred 40 days after his resurrection, during which time he showed himself at sometimes up to 500 people at a time, but various and sundry people, as the gospel writers tell us, Jesus appeared. And so the sacrificial work of Jesus is finished on the cross, and his resurrection comes. Remember what he says on the cross? Three words. It is finished. It's done. It's completed. It's finished. He's placed into a grave. He resurrects. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he sits down. His being seated in this imagery says, I'm finished. It's done. Well, what's done? What's finished? Well, it's the end, if you read the writer of Hebrews. It's the end of all animal sacrifice. It's the end of an imperfect human priesthood. It's the end 
of the temple being the dwelling place of our Lord. And here's the really, it's the really good thing. I'm quoting from my friend Rich Nathan. Rich Nathan says, And it is the end of all our nervous activity attempting to gain God's favor, and that's good. Wow. It's the end of all our nervous activity attempting to gain God's favor. Jesus, in his birth, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, says it is finished. N.T. Wright says exactly the same thing uh, that uh, Rich Nathan says in a little bit of a different way, and I want to read it as well to you. He simply says this. He says, to embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief. To embrace the ascension is to heave a sigh of relief to give up the struggle to be God. Oh, you need to hear that. Some of you need to hear that. He is God. We are not. We try to assume that position regularly by control and by manipulation, by hard work and perspiration, but the good news is He is God and we are not. And with it, give up the struggle to be God. And with it, with it, to give up the inevitable, inevitable despair that comes with our constant failure. Been there, done that. Trying to be God of my life, and I am depressed and despairing because I have fallen and I have failed, and the good news is it's not dependent on how good I am. It's dependent on the one who is dead, buried, resurrected, and ascended, and how good he is. It's not how much I have hold of him. It's how much he has hold of me, and it's why the early iconography, the pictures of the followers of Jesus show a picture of Jesus grabbing hold of a man and a woman by the wrist, and he's pulling them out of the depths. And it's all about not us having hold of him, but him having hold of us, doing his gracious, good, and wonderful work of rescuing us and saving us because his sacrificial work is done. It's done. And that's really good news. It means that you and I now can put all of our weight on the completed work of Jesus. That's another way to say what faith is. Faith is putting all of our weight in the work of Jesus. Actually, I'm exhibiting great faith to you, and you're exhibiting exactly the same faith that I'm exhibiting this morning. Every one of us is seated in a chair that we trust to hold us. I don't see anybody nervous and squirming for fear that the chair you're seated in is going to let you down. Wait, wait. No, I was right. Nobody's squirming and nervous because they're fearful that the chair that they're seated on is letting us down. This is the good news that Rich Nathan pointed out, that N.T. Wright pointed out. When we put faith in Jesus, we stop squirming. We stop agonizing. We stop worrying. We stop trying to be someone and something that we were never intended to be because we now can rest in the finished sacrificial work 
of Jesus. And that's awesome. That's really good news. And that's why the ascension is important. Well, let's continue. The reason, another reason that the ascension is important is simply this. In his ascension, Jesus gives empowering gifts to us. Jesus gives empowering gifts to us. Uh, just come back to verses 18 and 19. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, if you're familiar with the scripture, this ought to bring some things back to your memory, perhaps the disciples in Jesus' conversation that John in his gospel records to us about their concern for his departure when Jesus says, I'm going to go away. He says a couple of things there, and I'm only going to highlight a couple because that's just sort of a, a nudge in the right direction. Here's, here's two things that he says in John 14. He says, I'm going to go away, and you don't have to be worried because if I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, that's good news. That's good news. We, we, there's, this, there's this place of rest and refreshing that Jesus is preparing for us. We're invited. We're welcome. That's really, really good news. And then he says this. He says, and it's also good that I'm going to go away because when I go away, I'm going to send you the comforter, the perikletos. I'm going to send you the one who will be with you, the Holy Spirit, and he's going to come, and when he comes, he'll lead you into truth and knowledge, and he'll lead you to the conviction of repentance, and it's really, really good for us. And the interesting thing is the gifts of empowerment that Jesus gives to us, first of all, is this. One of the gifts of empowerment is simply Jesus is present to us without geographical reference. His ascension allows us to have the presence of Jesus without geography implied. You, you realize Jesus was limited. He could only be where he was. In his resurrection, he could be strangely in places where doors were locked and people were gathered. He could appear and he could disappear so there was this thing that was going on that we have to say is a complete and total mystery. A complete and total mystery. I don't get it. But it was a body that could be touched. It was a body that could be seen. And it was a body that could eat. So, so, so here's the deal. Jesus' ascension to the Father at his right hand, sitting down, allows us to receive the Spirit and also the real presence of Jesus wherever we are, no matter geography. That's good news. That's really, really good news. Here, here's the other thing. If you haven't thought about this, who is it that has ascended? Who is it that has ascended? What do we say about Jesus? We say that he was the Word became flesh. We say in John 1, 14, that the Word of God became flesh and did what? moved into the neighborhood, made himself known, up close and personal. Here's the deal. We talk about that in this word. The word is incarnation. He became 
one of us. News, he's still one of us. News, he's still one of us. He is still the God-man forever who is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's good news. And the writer of Hebrews tells us why that's good news is because where he goes, we also will be able to go. Blow your mind. A human is seated next to the Father at his right hand. I know, that's stretching for some of you. True. That's what the Gospels teach. That's what the book teaches, that the forever incarnate one transformed with the promise that we will be like he is, strange as that sounds, is forever seated next to the Father and his right hand, a, a, a place of power and a place of preference, a place of honor, a place of regal presence. Forever the God-man, forever fully God, fully man, which is what he set aside. He set aside his divinity for a while, but he didn't give it up. He just set it aside. Forever the God-man seated next to the Father. Well, here's the good news about that. The good news about that is Jesus gives those empowering gifts to us, and the real empowering gift there is simply this. It's simply this. And this is from um, W.L. Leefeld in his commentary on Ephesians 1, verse 19. He says simply this, We must never underestimate the power of God that resides in the believer when we need help. Ah, he, he, here's, he gives power. He gives empowering gifts to us because he's the God-man. The author of Hebrews says he knows exactly who we are and how we are and how frail and broken we are and he loves us and he identifies with us but he stands with us in a way that no one else can stand or ever has stood. He says... We can never underestimate the power of God that resides in the believer when we need help. What kind of help? Help in temptation. Help in power. Help in power in prayer. Help with boldness in witnessing. Or simply just the courage to do what's right. This is not a power at our disposal it is for God to exercise to accomplish His will. Obedience opens the way. Now, I know we're not a shouting church, but that's shouting time. If my granny was here, she would stand up and do a little something for us. I won't do it because, you know. But she would stand up and she'd cross her arms back and forth and she would say, woo, and turn around in a circle. And then just sit back down. Yeah. If you didn't figure it out, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. It's all right. It's all right. It's all right. My granny, my granny would have stood up on that when she had done a woo and spun around and then sat right back down. That's the good news. The, the ascension of Jesus gives empowering gifts to us. L let me just take it deeper. I, I'm going to continue here, and I've got a little bit more time here, so I'm not too nervous. 
Uh, when we talk about Paul and his understanding of the ascension, I, I mentioned to you previously, and I'm coming back to it now, uh, Luke, in his gospel, also tells us about the ascension in his gospel, Luke, of Luke, but he also gives us a really clear picture, and I, I just want to take the time to read this out of Acts chapter 1, verse 9, and, and, excuse me, out of Acts chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, and I'm going to read quite a lengthy period of, uh, uh, lengthy portion of the scripture here, uh, but I want you to connect this with the way it's really connected, and it is, the connection is the ascension of Jesus, and sometimes we just forget this because we focus on something else. So um, if you're familiar with this passage, listen, if not, Acts 1, beginning with verse 3, and I'm reading again from the New International Version. After his suffering, Jesus, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem... But wait for the gift my father promised, which you heard me speak about, John 14. When I go away, I'll send the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you. The day of Pentecost, we, we know that's coming later in the book of Acts. He says, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Simply filled to overflowing, immersed, dunk, fully saturated. Just that, saturated, filled, overflowing with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And uh, most of the time when we read that, we say his answer is no, but that's not his answer. His, his answer isn't no. He says, not yet. Not yet. He says, it's not for you to know. Yeah, he didn't say no. He said, it's not for you to know now. The times or the dates the Father has set out by his own authority. But, here's the important part, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And pause there. It's concentric circles. Where they are, next circle out to, the, to, to sort of the county and a larger surrounding place, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. He just keeps expanding concentric circles of geography. And then he goes on to say, and, and oh, by the way, to the ends of the earth. And then it says this, and this is, that's where we stop sometimes. And it says this in verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, in Jesus' ascension, he empowers us. He empowers us with good gifts. And one of the things we have to say is that he empowers us with the presence and, in, and, and infilling the overflow of the Holy Spirit in ways that are new. Not that the Holy Spirit wasn't present, but that the Holy Spirit is present now in a different way. Okay? And so Jesus says that he's going to empower us by the Spirit. Now, when we talk about his kingdom, we talk about his kingdom, here's the understanding 
When we talk about his kingdom, we have to understand that Jesus understood that God's kingdom existed wherever people put their trust in God and sought to love God and love their neighbor. Does that sound familiar or what? They put their trust in God and they seek to love God and their neighbor. What does Jesus say about the, the, the primary commandment that will encompass everything? He says, love God passionately with everything that's in you. Know, oh, by the way, there's one that's like it, and it's love your neighbor as you love yourself. We know that is the golden rule, right? Love God and love others. Have you ever thought that the empowering presence of the Spirit was for that singular purpose? Just for a moment, lay aside any controversy with regard to giftings or how few or how many. Lay aside the, the understanding of power gifts present for today or not. Just lay that aside for just a second. What if we understood the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit was to aid and enable us to love God passionately? Show us the truth in Jesus. That helps us love God passionately. Show us the truth of his activity in the world that brings us conviction. That's really good. And show us that there is a, a day that's coming that we will give an account for the way we've lived our lives. That is empowering. That's incredible. And so, so what if it was about loving God passionately that the Spirit was all about? And then secondly, loving our neighbors like we love ourselves. What if that was what it was all about? You see, now, now we understand that he says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Of what do we witness? Of what do we witness? Dare I say, we witness the transforming love of Jesus that we have been experiencing, that we have been given the Spirit as the present abiding reminder that God is for us and not against us. Okay. The power of the Spirit enables us to love the Father, love the Son, love the Spirit more. We love God passionately. So witness, witness is loving God passionately, but it can't stop there. Witness is not full and or complete until we witness by loving others well. That's our witness. Take you back to what I said in the beginning. By this shall all men know that you are my followers that you love one another. Now, the church sometimes has taken an exclusive love and we've drawn a tight little circle around the particular people that we gather with on Sunday to share our faith. And I would just say to you, yes, that's included, but it is so much larger than that. Because Jesus says our witness will be not just with the closest, tightly drawn circle that's possible, but he says our, 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 our witness of love for Father, love for Son, love for Spirit, and love for others, that it will grow in extending concentric circles of expansion until it reaches the ends of the earth. 
which means there's no place we go that doesn't demand our witness of the empowering presence of the ascended Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit that we love God passionate and we love others as we love ourselves. That's the challenge of the church. So let me give you a tip. Here's the deal. If we're going to be people like that, we're going to be people like that. Here's, we ha- here's what we have to do. We, stop half, we, we need to stop launching our conversations with answers that people aren't asking. You know, answers to questions that people aren't asking. Right? So, so stop providing answers as your launching point. Don't start with answers. Here's the deal. Here's the, if we're going to be this kind of church that loves God passionately and loves others like we love ourselves, we have to start with questions. We have to start with questions. And questions are simply invitations like this. Tell me your story. Tell me your story. Yesterday I was listening to NPR, and they were, uh, Rick Steves was doing an interview, and he was talking to some people from Ireland. And he was talking about, hey, if you travel to Ireland, what are some things that you should really know? And he says, well, what would be one thing that you could do that would endear, would endear the Irish people sitting around a table that perhaps you're spending your time with at a bed and breakfast or maybe at a pub or maybe at a place to eat a meal? What would be one thing that you could do to endear them uh, dear, endear yourselves to them, knowing that you're an American, they're not, they're Irish. How, how do you, how do you make, what are you saying? How do you make a connection? And uh, the guy said, well, you know, you could start telling them about yourself, but if you did that, you'd be going down the wrong path. Ding, 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 ding. If we'll hold off on telling people where we are and who we are first, and we'll do what Rick Steve says next and his guest said next, we'll, we'll get the chance to tell people who we are, okay? Here's what he said. You're sitting around a table. Here'd be a great way to, and these are Irish people talking. This would be a great way to endear yourself. Ask them about their family in America. Almost all the Irish have family in America. Ask them to tell them, tell, tell you about their family in America. You know what he's saying? He's just saying this. Tell me your story. Just tell me your story. Tell me about you. I mean, don't you love that? You sit down and somebody says, so tell me about you. Like, where'd you grow up? Where'd you live? What's your family like? Where'd you go to school? What'd you like when you were a kid? What's your favorite color? Just just ordinary conversation. You ask those kinds of questions, and then ultimately, if you take a breath and pause long enough, stop asking bombarding questions. You know, you stop bombarding them with questions. And you just take a deep breath and pause. You know what they'll say? Nine times out of ten. Well, tell me about you. Invitation. So here's the deal. Our witness of loving God and loving our neighbor begins with asking questions and listening. As we ask questions and listen, and listen here's what will happen. When you begin to hear other people's story, your acceptance of them will grow exponentially. The more you know about somebody, the more endearing it is. And man, you listen to people's stories and you say, wow, I didn't know that. And what happens? Empathy and compassion are birthed in you. Um, If you want to practice this with somebody you know, if you're married, practice it with your spouse. If you have children, practice it with your children because this is what happens. When you start engaging in that way, tell me about yourself, tell me about your day, tell me what's going on, tell me how your life is and they start telling you empathy and compassion is built in your heart toward these people. 
And then as we ask questions and listen and our acceptance grows, guess what? The possibility of us actually loving them increases. It, it actually increases. And they don't even have to think like us. They don't even have to believe like us. Can I, can I tell you? Remember, we've told you this before. Acceptance has nothing to do with approval. Absolutely nothing. And I can love you as you are, where you are, and I can accept you, and I can vehemently disagree with you about your political stance, about your religious stance, about your philosophical stance. I can disagree with you about a bunch of stuff. But if I listen and I know who you are and I can accept you and I can grow in my understanding, that acceptance allows me the possibility of loving you. And I, I'm just going to finish because my time is up. But here's the other thing. So it's not just the ascension helps us understand that the, the sacrificial work of Jesus is finished. It doesn't also, that, that the ascension helps us understand that Jesus uh, offers us empowering gifts. But here's, here's the other thing, and you just got to know this, and I'll just say this really quickly. The incarnation identifies to us in a real and powerful way that Jesus is praying for us. Jesus is praying for us. Romans chapter 8 and Romans, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 7. I'll just read these and be quickly done. Paul says in Romans 8, in a very powerful passage that uh, is incredible. If you haven't read that recently, go back and read that today. Just go back and read Romans 8. How loved you are by God. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding, praying for us. What's he praying? He's praying for us in our temptation. He's praying for us to be bold. He's praying for us to be courageous. He's praying for us to do just what is right so that we can be obedient to the Father. Is it possible that maybe Jesus is praying the way he taught us to pray? Father in heaven, your name is holy. Let your kingdom come in. Put your name right there. Let your kingdom come in. Let your will be done in on earth as it's done in heaven. Give them today. <coughs> Give them today everything they need for their sustaining power. Lead them into victory. Deliver them from the evil one. For your glorious namesake, may it be so. Have you ever thought that Jesus might be actually praying that for you? It says, Jesus preferred prayer. Ask how to teach prayer. Jesus preferred prayer was that. Father in heaven, holy be your name. Let your kingdom come. Is it possible that he's still praying that prayer? I don't know, but I think so. Because it's so powerful. And then Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24 25, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Is it possible that the words of Jesus from the cross are still the words that he prays for us? And those words are these, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Is it possible that he prays for us and says, it is finished. 
receive my glorious love and grace. Rest in me and give up your anxiety in trying to perform to earn your way anywhere into my kingdom. Is it possible that he's praying that we are those who are blessed beyond measure with the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us and instruct us into all good things? Is it possible that he's praying for us to have our eyes open so we see that every good and beautiful gift comes down from the Father of lights? Is it possible that he's awakening us to the beauty of his creation and to the joy of life and relationship? Is it possible that he's saying, let them experience more love for the Father? Let them experience more love for the Spirit. Let them experience more empowering, awakening, transforming presence. I think it is. I think it's possible. Matter of fact, I think it's more than possible. I don't know what he's praying but I think he's praying an awful lot of stuff that sounds what I just, like what I just said because that's who he says he is in his life, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. We believe in the ascended Jesus because his work is finished. His, his saving, atoning work is finished. He gives empowering gifts to us, and he is praying for us, and that's really, really, really good news. Let me take it one step further. It's true. It's true. There are a lot of things that are debatable. This is not one of them. This is not one of them. This, this is not one of them. This is true. And I know that's not always good news to everybody, but for everybody who has ears to see, and for everybody who has eyes to see, it is the best news ever. <laughs>